Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello and welcome to today's lunchtime talk. My name is Lee Robb. I'm the Curator of Contemporary Art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And I'd like to acknowledge that we're gathering here for this talk on Ghana country and to pay our respects to elders past and present and recognise that this was, is and always will be Aboriginal land. So I think on that note, thinking about histories of domestic and global displacement and the fight for human justice are at the heart of Ai Weiwei's extraordinary practice. So today I'll be discussing really the background of Ai Weiwei, an extraordinary artist and political activist, and giving a bit of a background and a biography on, on his extraordinary life and then lead into a discussion about this work, 258 Fake, this 12-screen installation, um, which is part of the display True Self, which I've curated as part of the 2021 Asia Festival. Well, it's very exciting to see so many people here in spite of the horse races and the Melbourne Cup. So thank you for coming to talk about art <laughs> and, uh, and the plight of human justice today. <laughs> Great. So born in Beijing in 1957, Ai Weiwei could be described as a polymath and an iconoclast. He's considered a conceptual artist, an architect, a curator, a photographer, a documentary filmmaker, an expert blackjack player, and an occasional rock musician. Ai Weiwei's practice that spans four decades has been defined by his global social activism, from protests and art interventions from his early days when he was a student in Beijing, to his street activism in New York, to harnessing changing technologies in the early 2000s, positioning himself at the forefront of the evolving cycle of online platforms from his first blog in 2005 eventually migrating to Twitter and then to Instagram to raise collective consciousness about human rights. And if any of you follow Ai Weiwei on Instagram, I think he has over 620,000 uh, followers, probably a lot more than that because there's a few unofficial accounts as well. You'll see how he uses the internet to promote and share his art activism. And, you know, he's an artist who's a concerned citizen of the world, speaking for underrepresented people, not just in China. And what I found really interesting looking at Ai Weiwei and his you know, development as an artist is that there's this intergenerational activism and political dissent that runs through his family history. Ai Weiwei's mother, Gao Ying, was a writer and his father, Ai Qing, a celebrated poet. And he was considered a black element during Mao's cultural revolution and the anti-writist, anti-intellectual campaigns of the 1950s. And as many of you know, this was a period in which millions of Chinese citizens considered writers were sent to labor camps or were to exile to the countryside. When Ai Weiwei was only one year old, his family was sent to the remote northern province of Xinjiang, where his father was forced to carry out hard labor. His father, Ai Qing, was exiled for his poetry, including a poem in 1938, which is titled The North, in which he wrote, I love this wretched country this age-old country, this country that has nourished what I love, the world's most long-suffering and most venerable people. So Ai Qing, exiled along with millions of others, was rounded up and sent to remote border, border regions to reform through labor. And through this, the lives of Ai Qing and his wife and two sons were upended. 
After a decade um, uh, in the north, in the, in the sort of northern border on the edges of Mongolia, Ai Ching and Ai Weiwei, together they went to little Siberia on the edge of the Gurban Tungut Desert, which, as I said, is near the border of Mongolia, where they lived in what Ai Weiwei describes as a square hole dug into the ground with a crude roof formed of tamarisk branches and rice stalks and sealed with several layers of grassy mud. Ai Weiwei said, in order to survive as a child, he learned many of his practical and practical skills and traditional crafts that he would later apply to his art. Uh, he learned how to make bricks and constructing furniture. And he said of, of his childhood that his living conditions were extremely harsh and his education was almost non-existent. But somehow the family had managed to keep one book, a large encyclopedia, um, that Ai Weiwei held dear. Years later, in 1976, Chairman Mao died after 41 years at the helm of the Chinese Communist Party. Ai Ching and his family were allowed to return to Beijing from exile after Mao's death. Ai Weiwei was 19 years old at this point. When he got to Beijing, he applied to the Beijing Film Academy. He wanted to study animation, but soon he became involved with the unofficial Beijing art scene, and he was participating in rallies and protests, and was one of the founding members of a subversive political group of artists called the Stars, or the Xingxing, <coughs> excuse me, famous for their renegade exhibition of paintings, which lined the railings of, the Be of Beijing's National Art Gallery in 1979. It's, if, you, if you look up any of these photographs, you, it's quite extraordinary. They're just three rows deep of paintings lining the outside railings and fence of Beijing's National Gallery. This group, the Xinxing, the Xinxing um, wanted to return to the notion of art as a form of personal self-expression after decades of Mao's policy of controlling art to serve the communal interests of the state. During Mao's reign, artists didn't sign their works with their own names, but with the words a thousand years to Chairman Mao. The manifesto of the Xingxing read, in the face of the realities of Chinese culture as a whole, the greatest responsibility of China's artists and intellectuals is to exert every effort at any cost to help the people of China to shed the past and transform into a society of free and creative spirits. This will be the true measure of China's modernization. And I think this manifesto, which Ai Weiwei helped to pen at the time, reflects his early position on the urgency and the power of art to affect cultural and social change. But in the 80s, um, just as the reform and the opening up policies were being implemented in China in 1981, and at the age of 23, Ai Weiwei was able to obtain a student visa and he moved to America. For the first year, he studied at various, various schools and tried to improve his English and eventually moved to New York in 1982, where he studied briefly at the Parsons School for Design under the artist Sean Scully, whose painting we have in the adjacent gallery, Wall of Light, Grey Pink. After about six months, he, he dropped out of Parsons and instead tried to make a living as a street artist, as a photographer, and doing various odd jobs. During the early 80s, Ai Weiwei lived in a tiny apartment in New York's East Village, and he was very much a part of the expatriate Chinese artists and intellectuals, and his friends were filmmaker Chen kai composer Dan Tan Dun, and artist Xu Bing. And he associated with Allen Ginsberg, who had met his own father, 
and he was hugely influenced by the life and work of Andy Warhol. During this time, and during this sort of decade in New York, Ai Weiwei shot over 10,000 photographs of the neighborhood's flourishing avant-garde scene, and really captured Ai Weiwei's presence at, amongst all of this as well. And so it was really through this time in New York, through attending and documenting street protests in New York in the late 1980s, that Ai Weiwei was exposed to social protests, to happenings and to performance, and to really, I guess, to understand these as a form of art. A selection of 227 photographs that Ai Weiwei took during this decade have since been compiled in an amazing book, and it was an exhibition which is called New York Photographs from 1983 to 1993. And they're an extraordinary document of a vital era in the urban life of the city, of a period of civil uprising, but also capture the artistic outpouring of the New York art scene. And I guess they really track his social life and trace Ai Weiwei's early developments of his conceptual art practice and really chronicle his life starting as a radical artist. And I think when we, we will come to this work, I promise, it also demonstrates that Ai Weiwei has been a prolific photographer for many decades and it really all of this photographic work in New York can also be seen as a prelude to this work, 258 Fake. In 1993, after spending 12 years in America, Ai Weiwei returned to Beijing to be with his ailing father, one of his greatest influences in his life, who passed away three years later in 1996. Well, Ai Weiwei stayed on, and he soon became an active and important member of the Beijing art community, alongside artists like Zhang Huan, amongst others, and he really called it the sort of Beijing East Village at the time. But even though Ai Weiwei had his first solo show, which was called Old Shoes, Safe Sex, held in New York in 1988 at Ethan Cohen Gallery, it wasn't really until the late 1990s that he was recognised by the international art world with his sculptural works. I'm sure you've seen images of these, the Han Dynasty vase with the Coca-Cola logo, or his assemblages of Chinese three-legged wooden stools that, you know, works that have either defaced or deconstructed traditional Chinese artefacts and furniture. I guess you could really see them as his version of Duchampian ready-mades, that idea that anything can be considered a work of art if the artist deems it so. And Duchamp, like Warhol, was a significant influence on Ai Weiwei. I think he even created a portrait of Ai Weiwei, which is a, used a sort of a coat hanger, a wire coat hanger, and created a profile which he filled with uh, sunflower seeds. Um, and it's been said that the internet is to Ai Weiwei what the urinal was to Duchamp. Quite a provocation, but I guess such is the profound impact of Ai Weiwei's repurposing of the internet's digital tools and images to create what has become his defining visual language. So throughout the early 2000s in Beijing, Ai Weiwei became increasingly political in his powerful use of photography and using the internet as a platform, most notable being his extraordinary citizens investigation project, which ran from 2008 to 2011. And probably many of you will remember the, the devastating uh, news in May 2008, just a few months before the Olympics, when China experienced a devastating earthquake in the Sichuan province. In the months following, Ai Weiwei and fellow artists and activists were enraged about the government's handling of this disaster and their underreporting of the deaths. He set up a private investigation along with artists and volunteers, and over three years, they tallied the names of the 5,219 students who died in the earthquake. So I think this detailed biography of Ai Weiwei is really essential for us to understand 
in order for us to discuss and unpack this work here, Fake 258Fake, which is his 12-screen installation, which brings together 7,682 photographs, which were taken by the artist over eight years between 2003 and 2011. And this is a really important moment, um, well, it's quite a long moment, but it leads up to when he was held in detention by the Chinese authorities for three months, and after which he was sentenced to four years of domestic arrest, and his passport was seized until July 2015. And he basically lived online during this time, during his sort of four years under house arrest. But if we look to, to this work here, um, 258 Fake scrolls through thousands and thousands of photographs as a 12-screen installation. Many of the images are taken from 2005 to about 2008, when he started his very first blog. During that time, he would prolifically, daily upload images of himself, of his studio, um, of his cat, of everything that he ate, but it was also a really robust and active forum for, I guess, in a way, political dis dissent and dialogue. It was intermittently interrupted and shut down. He was constantly tracked. Uh, the name of the work, 258 Fake, comes from the name of his studio in Beijing. As I mentioned before, Ai Weiwei is both considered an architect and an artist. He was involved in designing the bird's nest or the Olympic Stadium uh, as well. And 258 Fake is the address of, and the name of his studio in Beijing. Not all of the photos are taken in here. A lot of this really tracks what is an extraordinary international artistic career. But an artist who is both under, I guess, self-surveillance, who's tracked his own every move, but has also been tracked online through his blogs, and when eventually his blog was shut down, forcibly shut down in 2008, when it had a total of 17 million subscribers, which is, <laughs> which is a phenomenal number, and, uh, and was forcibly shut down in 2008. After that point, he migrated his activities to Twitter, and now to Instagram. And I guess, you know, looking at this work, I think I've worked out that they scroll every three seconds, and if there's 12 screens, there's about 640 images on every screen. So if you wanted to just watch one screen to, to track it, it would take you about half an hour, maybe a little bit more, but I guess it's a, a panoply of images that are, that are constantly screening and rotating, which almost seem to be a sort of metaphor for, for, for the internet, but are really a, a closed loop and an extraordinary visual diary, which reveals a lot of the way that Ai Weiwei records and shares his personal and professional life as a closely watched international artist. So I guess this extraordinary and ever-changing self-portrait, 258 fake, also questions the authenticity of the photographic medium and the role of surveillance in the representation of the self or as a mode of self-portraiture. And he said, looking back on the past, I can see that these photographs are facts but not necessarily true. The present always surpasses the past, and the future will not care about today. This work, 258 Fake, then, is also a time capsule, and I think in more ways than one. It chronicles chapters of freedom and incarceration of the artist, physically and virtually. While these images are from the years before his detention and his domestic arrest, when he could leave China, the platform hosting his blog was regularly interrupted or blocked. As we watch this work, it's flickering still photographs changing every three seconds. It captures a fast-paced period in China and the life of probably the most surveilled and watched artist in the world. 
his house arrest and the concept of lockdown has now been experienced in some part through the COVID pandemic. So as we watch the artist on his global travels, installing his major institutional exhibitions all over the world, the cuisine of a hundred cities, the friendships and the communities he moved through, it feels timely once again, capturing the complexities of international relationships and border controls. But since the return of his passport in 2015, Ai Weiwei has not been living in China. He's travelled extensively, documenting the thousands of displaced refugees in refugee camps in, on the Greek and Macedonian border in 2016. And some of you may have watched his uh, 2016 extraordinary documentary, feature length, which is called Human Flow, about the refugee crisis. So Ai Weiwei has been described as one of the world's most socially engaged artists and he's used digital media as a means for relentlessly campaigning for freedom of expression. I think in 2010, he took Jack Dorsey, who is the founder of Twitter, to task about the censorship of Twitter in China. And he said, the internet is uncontrollable, and if the internet remains uncontrollable, then freedom will win. It's as simple as that. So Ai Weiwei has and continues to use photography, the internet and tools of the digital age to create new forms of resistance, which grants him greater autonomy than that which can be found in the material or the physical world. And he engages his international audiences using the internet and really thinking about the internet and these platforms as borderless artistic platform that for the most part, unless interrupted or blocked, or let's say in spite of being censored, as this work attests, which has allowed him to communicate his art, ideas and critiques beyond the confines or borders of any country. So I'll end with a few words by the artist from his highly anticipated memoir that actually hits the bookshelves tomorrow. So finger on the pulse here. So I wish I could have read it before today, but I've managed to glean a few, a few words from his opening paragraphs. His memoir is called A Thousand Years of Joys and Sorrows. Um, which he started in 2011, the year he was detained by Chinese authorities for nearly three months. During this detention, he said he was trying to remember the past and his relationship with his father, and he decided that if he was freed from detention, he would start his memoir, and he would start with what happened with his grandfather and his grandfather's generation. And he said that he wanted to write this so that he can leave it to his son, for him to remember and also understand what really happened to his grandfather and his father and to know what the cost of freedom is. He says, if art cannot engage with life, it has no future. Thank you very much for joining me today and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. When you're speaking that he uses photography in a way that it's he is being surveilled and he is surveilling himself and he's revealing himself and every photograph is a document and so it's like if the authorities are looking at me, I'm going to also look at me. Yeah, and I'm going to show who I'm with and I'm with all these people. All these people have their own networks and their own power and I see it as a real... It's a technique of shoring up his safety, which he must have felt and feels is endangered. So it's like a strategy for survival, really. Yeah, yeah, I think you're totally right, and I think that's also been been proven ever, ever since. You know, since he's left uh, China, and 
I mean, he was he was held under under house arrest, but probably a lot of people remember the time when globally everyone was campaigning for his freedom, and it was it became a, a you know a massive global and international campaign because all of the people and and I'm sure Rana Devonport, who's here, recognises many of the museums and spaces in Asia, in China, all of the international exhibitions, and there's many international art directors and artists and his community. So yeah, I think the the double surveillance in a sense that he's um, capturing everything of himself as a means of, yeah, shoring up his, his, his safety and his security, um, or even, I guess, beating them at their own game. Yeah. Yeah. Add to that, I think that's a really important point, Maria, and just two little stories I think tell something about Ah Weiwei. Um, I had the great privilege of going to his studio well before, this was in the 90s, so well before, and he's, a, he's an incredible collector of historical objects. And so we're in his studio and it was a huge space, I don't know, you know, um, eight times the size of this room. And there was this extraordinary collection of megalithic stones. So it was this completely minimal, very, very beautiful piece. And he was constantly acquiring historical objects. But also around the same time, there was a group from MoMA, collectors from MoMA who had arrived. And they were one, they, they'd been there like the week before or so. And he spent the whole time surveilling them secretly. So it caused quite a sensation because they were all being photographed and uh, without their permission. So even then, I think this has been this notion of both history and um, you know, long time, uh, and I was going to say deep time, but it's <laughs> in that way, but also using the technologies of surveillance in a, in a very self-reflexive um, and provocative way. And I think you, your point about both Duchamp and Warhol is really spot on in terms of his, um, his touchstones. Thanks, Rana, for sharing that, that gem of being in Ai Weiwei's studio. Do we have any other questions? Ah, there's... Yeah, this, this, the, the whole structure, the screens, the media players, which works are on which screen and which media player, I guess, rotates through about 640 images on each screen. This whole installation was designed and prescribed by Ai Weiwei. Um, they can go in various formats though. It can go in a line can, um, or a grid, but we thought a grid was the most powerful way to see everything all at once, which seems sort of underpinning the idea of the work? Yeah, well, I think some of them will come from lots of different cameras, from, the point, from, you know, from camera phones to actual uh, cameras over time. And because he pulled all the images from his blog, which was also part of a... Before it became this work, it was just called Blog Photographs. And then he's augmented them with still photographs that go back to, to 2003 and run all the way to 2011, so sort of eight years. And I guess in terms of digital technology, quite a lot of things happen in that time, really sort of, I guess, te technologically with, with smartphones and, and things like that as well. Yeah. Well, I think he's had an extraordinary life um, and in a way this is just one, one chapter uh, and, and probably a chapter that predates one of his most dramatic periods as well before he's in home detention and before he uh, starts travelling to refugee camps and making, you know, making films about that. So 
yeah, well, I don't know. Each each decade has, you know, significant amount of of of, of trauma. Great. Thank you everyone. Thanks so much.